Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Let me read for you Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, small section today. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Let's just ask God's blessing on our study together today. Now, Father, we bow before this important word of yours. We know that it is one of the greatest commands that you have given us. And we, we trust, Lord, that we'll not only find the understanding, but the motivation to live up to what you want us to do from this text today. Bless the words of my mouth. Bless the thoughts of each heart today as we study your word together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we've been saying in, in the weeks past as we've gone through the book of Galatians that Christians are not under the law. That Christians don't have to keep the Ten Commandments or any of the other Old Testament law in order to be saved. That we are saved by faith in Christ our Savior. That we are, that's called grace. We're saved by grace. Grace means a free gift. Means that it's what God gives us and not what we do for ourselves. And if we haven't drilled that into our heads yet, we'll never get it. I trust that everybody's got that now. If you know what the book of Galatians is about, it's simply that we're not saved or kept saved by the law or by the Old Testament law, but we're saved and kept saved by grace through faith in Christ. Faith is the principle of the Christian life. So we are free. And that, is the section, and that is the truth that's been going all through the book of Galatians. We're free. We have liberty in Christ. We're not under the law anymore. We're dead to the law. And so, the end of chapter 4, verse 31. So then, brethren, we're not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. And chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Now, if a Christian is free, meaning that there's nothing he has to do to earn salvation, or there's nothing he has to do to keep salvation, then does that mean a Christian can do anything he or she wants to do? That is often the charge you see leveled at people who teach that you cannot lose your salvation, and that salvation is by grace alone, through faith. We are often accused of being antinomian. You know what that means? Antinomian, namas is law. Deuteronomy is second law, and namas is law. Anti is against the law or without law. Antinomian means that we don't believe in any laws at all. They, they say, well, they accuse us then, if you think that you're saved by grace and there's nothing you can do, then you think that there's no laws that you have to keep at all. You can go out and do anything you want. Have you ever been accused of that? I certainly have. Um, they say, you, you think once saved, always saved, then you think you can go out and do anything that you want. 
Well, the Bible does say we're free. It doesn't. It does say we're not under the law. So how do we answer that? If Christians are not to be legalists, then are we to be antinomian, or is there something in between? Legalism, license, or liberty? Which is it for the Christian? Legalism that stays under the law, license that says you're free from everything, or is there something that governs our liberty? And it is true, I think you would agree, that oftentimes those who believe in grace, and once saved, always saved, use grace as an excuse for sin. And I've seen it, and you've seen it, and there are those who have a distorted way of thinking. Well, we're under grace, so uh, I can do whatever I want to. And they go through life uh, free spirits and not accountable to anything in the scriptures. And they use it to excuse all kinds of things from divorce and drinking to ad adultery, fornication, or pornography. I've seen it used in all these instances. I'm free, so it doesn't really matter. I can do whatever I want to. Is there such a thing as absolute freedom? That raises another question. Is there such a thing as absolute freedom for the Christian or for anything? Can you tell me anything that is absolutely free to do what it or he or she wants to do? You know something? I can't think of anything. We often say that when we describe God that he has a lot of characteristics and one of them is freedom. God is free. But you know God is not absolutely free. There are things God cannot do. He cannot hate you. He cannot sin. God cannot break his own laws. He is bound to his own laws and must abide by his own character of who he is or he wouldn't be God. He can't deny himself, the scriptures say. So God is not absolutely free. And so it, it, it doesn't make sense at all for people to say we're absolutely free. Now in America, we say we're free. We're free people. But we're not absolutely free. There's all kinds of laws that govern us. We're not free from uh, paying our taxes. We're not free to drive through the streets however we want to. We're not free to go and kill our neighbor. There's all kinds of laws that govern how we live, even though we call ourselves a free people. What makes anyone think that in the Christian life, we have absolute freedom to do anything that we want to? That's absurd. That's what we're going to see today. We're going to see today that there is a principle that governs our liberty. It's a principle that uh, locks us into the kind of conduct in life God wants us to live. And it's a very important principle. Now, I kind of think that uh, when Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians, that there were some in the church, even though the legalists had come in and said, you have to keep the law, I think there were some in the church who were probably arguing against them. It seems like there was a faction arguing against them, and they were even growing pretty intense in their conflict. Look at verse 15. It says, if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Seems like there was some fighting going on here, like a cat fight. I think that there were probably some in the church who, although most were probably being persuaded by those who were teaching the law, there were some who were probably arguing, no, we're free from the law, we can do anything we want. And so Paul has to write them a word to show them that there is a restriction on the liberty that they have in Christ. He's been arguing for liberty for the first four chapters. And now he's going to put the brakes on. And he's going to say, wait a minute, there's something you need to know about this liberty of yours. There are limits to liberty. Now the first, is, uh, first thing we see in chapter 5, verse 13, the first part of the verse, is that liberty 
can be perverted by license. Liberty can be perverted by license. License meaning uh, a presumptuous type of uh, attitude that we can do whatever we want to. License, licentious, means that somebody that's just reckless and has no restraints. But liberty can be perverted by this kind of attitude, this attitude of license. Look at verse 13. It says, you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Who takes the initiative in our liberty? Who gives us liberty? I think we get a tip there in this word called. You've been called. God has called us to liberty. It's a gift from him. It's a privilege from him. It's something that comes from above. And so liberty is a privilege. And it's a privilege from God. I think it was uh, General Dwight, uh, President Dwight Eisenhower, when he was president, said, uh, a people who for, uh, values its privileges over its principles will soon lose both. And so we do have a privilege of being free from the law. But unless that is restricted by principles, it will become a perversion of what God wants us to do. And a good illustration of this, if we had the time, we could go back and study the argument of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And in that chapter, Paul is arguing in chapter 9. In chapter 8, he goes on to argue that, look, uh, uh, there's freedom in Christ, but you can't just do anything you want to. Some of you shouldn't eat meat if it offends your brother. Chapter 9, he says, look at me. I'm an apostle, and I gave up my right to earn a salary from you. He says, I gave that up. So sometimes freedom means giving up right, not just claiming all the rights you can. And then in chapter 10, he uses old Israel as an example and says, see, Israel was in the wilderness, and they were a privileged people of God. And yet they fell and died by the thousand to plagues and serpent bites, and they died in the wilderness because they abused their privileges as God's people. That's the argument of 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, and we don't have time to develop that. The point is simply that if you pervert your liberty with license, you will become, uh, again, in bondage, but in a bondage to sin and the penalties of sin. So you're called by God, meaning that it's a privilege from God, but like any privilege, liberty has its restrictions. It has its restrictions. There's no such thing as absolute freedom. And we'd be good to learn that, and to teach that, to preach that. And so the liberty that God gives us is not a license to sin, not a license to do whatever we want, but it's a, li it's a license, we should say, to do whatever God wants us to do. It's a freedom not to do what we want to do, but a freedom to serve God. And yet there are some who, there are some who could be Christians who actually do teach that we can do whatever we want. And I see different versions of it now and then here and there in print or on, on television. There's a well-known TV preacher that you've probably encountered if you've ever had insomnia. And uh, he sits there and smokes a cigar while he uh, wears funny hats while he uh, teaches the Bible. Um, and I've heard him counsel people do all kinds of crazy things, just pretty much do whatever you want to. We, we live under grace, he teaches. That is a perversion of grace. Grace has restrictions, just like any privilege has restrictions. There always have been people who abused grace. There always will be people that abuse grace. But that doesn't mean that we should say, say the Bible doesn't teach grace. Paul was accused of teaching grace. Would you please turn with me back to chapter 6? 
in verse 1 of Romans. Romans, that's where I want you to go. Go back several books to the book of Romans, chapter 6. And in Romans chapters 3 through 5, he's been arguing that you're saved by grace through faith. There's no works involved at all. And he lays himself open to the charge that, uh, are you teaching, Paul, that you can do anything that you want, that you can sin and not even worry about it? Well, look what he says in chapter 6 and verse 1 as he counters this objection. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Double negative. No way. Emphatic. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So what is it? the objection says, Paul, then you mean you can go and do anything you want? No way. We dead, we're dead to sin. Look at verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Just because you're under law, it does not follow logically that you are therefore free to do what you want. That's what Paul's saying. That's a wrong conclusion. When someone says to you, you mean once saved, always saved, you believe that, you can go and do whatever you want to? That's a faulty argument, according to Paul. Paul says it doesn't follow. Yes, I'm, I'm once saved, always saved, but I'm not free to do whatever I want to. I'm free to do what God wants me to do. So somebody that argues that way, just to call them to task for faulty logic. The same argument was used on Paul. The same argument is used on us who believe once saved, always saved. But that doesn't mean we're going to change our doctrine of grace. And sad to say there are people doing that today. They're saying, well, they're saying uh, they're, they impose stricter, more restrictions on how a person is saved. You've got to do this, you've got to do that to be saved. Or if a person sins, well, he never really was a Christian to begin with. Or they say, oh, well, you, if he sins and he's lost his salvation. There's all kinds of ways people try to get around the pure gospel of grace. But we don't pervert the gospel of grace, and we don't abuse it. We don't abuse our salvation and the grace of God by sinning. One time I saw a cartoon in a religious publication, and it was a cartoon of a woman. And she was taking her fine china out of her cabinet, and she was smashing it on the ground, and she was saying, Yay, I've discovered super glue! Now that's how much sense it makes for us as Christians who treasure God's grace, a wonderful thing, more wonderful than super glue. And do we go out and sin and say, oh, I'm under grace, I can do whatever I want to, I can commit adultery, I can commit fornication, I can uh, break my marriage covenant, I can uh, get drunk. That's about as absurd as that super glue illustration. There are some who do that, I know, I know and you've seen them too. We are free from sin, not to sin. That is what the scriptures are arguing. There's no such thing as absolute liberty, and liberty uh, can be perverted by license, by just a reckless type of lifestyle. But there is a restriction on liberty, and that's what we're going to see in the rest of the verses. Liberty is perverted by license, but it's perfected by love. Liberty is perfected by love. And I want to look at verses, the rest of verse 13 through 15, and I think I've got about eight points I want to make here. Okay? Eight, about eight observations in what Paul is teaching here in verses 13 through 15. Liberty is perfected by love. Now look at the last part of verse 13. He says, brethren, you've been called to liberty. Only 
do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. There's the restriction. Don't use it as a, a, a free ticket to sin and do whatever you want to, but through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. That word serve is the same word from which we get our noun, slave or servant. What he's saying is through love, be one another's slave. Be enslaved to one another. You see, Paul is, it's kind of ironic. Paul is kind of arguing. He's saying, well, you Galatians, kind of, you wanted to be under the law? You really want to be in bondage to something? Don't go back under the Old Testament law. Here's something that you can be in bondage to. Be enslaved to love one another. How about that for a form of slavery, he says. If you really want to be under a law, how about that law? Love one another. Isn't that the greatest law that Jesus gave us to keep among one another? He said the greatest commandment is to love God. But he said a second like it is this, love your neighbor as yourself. And over and over again, he reminds us of that, that, that commandment, the great, the supreme commandment, love one another. So love is the only bondage for Christians. Not the law, but love. You see, the law only incites us to sin. When we, when we hear, don't do that, it makes us want to do it. But love gives us true freedom as free as we're going to get. Not absolute freedom, but as free as we're going to get when we love one another. I remember a girl, she was in my youth group in Maryland when I was a youth pastor, and uh, she had a pretty rough background. Broken home, alcoholism, and so forth. She was uh, yet uh, pretty unperverted and uncorrupted. When she came into our group, she's probably about 13, 14 years old. And I remember picking her up one day and uh, taking her to the meeting and talking to her. And she says, uh, she's going through a rebellious stage. And I was just asking her, you know, different questions and trying to talk to her. And I remember her saying, I just want to be free. I want to be absolutely free. I want to do what I want to do. I remember her using that word free, though. I want to be totally free. And so that's the kind of lifestyle she lived in, in, in the next couple of years. She did what she wanted to do. There was no one to tell her not to do something. And within two years' time, she was an alcoholic and a teenage mother. Free. You call that free? Enslaved to alcohol. Bound as a mother at that early age. You see, there's nothing, there's no such thing as absolute freedom. Those who think they're free to sin and pursue that kind of lifestyle really end up enslaved to their sins and to their lusts, and to their habits, to the, and to the devil, who's the source of all this. And they become slaves, all the while laughing and, at us and saying, oh, look at you guys, you, you're, you're not free, you have to go to church, and you have to study the Bible, and you have to do this, and you have to pray, and all this stuff. And meanwhile, they have to have another drink of liquor, or they'll start getting cramps. Who's free? The ones who are free are those who love one another and don't rely on the Old Testament law, but rely on that great command of God to love one another. 
would you go back to Romans chapter 6? Now, Romans chapter 6 is real important here because it's kind of an expanded commentary on what he's saying in Galatians. So I want to look there one more time and read a few more verses in addition to what we've read to show you why we're free and how we are enslaved not to sin but to God. Go back to Romans chapter 6 and verse 15 and uh, just follow. What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you are that to whom you present yourselves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness. You see, everybody has to make a choice. Everybody in this world has made a choice. They've either decided to be enslaved to God or they've decided to be enslaved to sin and themselves. Everybody, there's no in-between. Verse 17. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. He's, he's saying, praise the Lord, you Romans were enslaved to sin, but now you've been delivered through Christ and you're enslaved to God. In verse 18, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Is there absolute freedom in the Christian life? No way. You are slaves to righteousness. You are bound to love one another which is the chief command of righteousness. And that's as free as we're going to get. But that's good freedom, to be able to love one another. Think of all the problems that are caused in this world by those who don't know how to love one another. All the slavery. All the uh, people taking advantage of one another. You can go back to Galatians chapter 5. So my first point is that love is the only bondage that's appropriate for Christians. My second point, here is that the real expression of love is service. Talk is cheap, in other words. And that's what, that's what it says in verse 13. It says, through love, serve one another. It doesn't say, through love, say good things about one another. Or through love, talk about doing good things to one another. It says, through love, serve one another. The real expression of love is service. What does 1 John 3, 18 say? Uh, Brothers, let us not love in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth. 1 John 3, 18. How do I know you really love one another? When I see you Serving the needs of another person. That's the acid test of love. Do you really serve one another? Not talk about it. Not give good advice or I'll pray for you. But step in at your own expense and sacrifice and inconvenience to meet the needs of another person. There's a third point I want to make in verse 13. True service comes from love, not legalism. True service comes from love, not legalism. Now, what do I mean, true service? Because there is a service that can come from legalism. There is a service that Christians can give, which is due not, that comes not from love, but is motivated more by the sense of, I better do this for this church, or I better do this for this person because that's what's expected of me, or because I need to earn merit 
with God, and I need to be acceptable to God, so I have to do this. I, have, I better teach that Sunday school class so that they'll think I'm spiritual. I better teach that Sunday school class so God will accept me. I better serve as a deacon or God's going to be mad with me. I better go witnessing and knocking on doors today because uh, otherwise uh, God just won't be happy. I won't be doing my Christian duty. You know, there's a lot of that going on. A lot of that going on. And uh, you see a lot of door knocking going on by cults, but there's a lot of Christian groups going out, and they knock on doors not for the love of people. They're knocking on doors so that because their preacher expects them to, or somebody else's church expects them to, or because they think God, uh, uh, they're not acceptable to God unless they do. And they've established all other kind, all, all kinds of other rules for themselves, like they have to be in church three, four times a week, or something like that. I'm not saying witnessing is bad, and knocking doors is bad, or going to church is bad. Or teaching a Sunday school class is bad, but what is your motivation? True service is motivated by love and not legalism. True service teaches the Sunday school class because there is a love for those kids or adults. And that's the motivation. True witnessing is because you love that person so much that you want something for them more than they want it for themselves. Because you don't want to see them go to hell. Because you want to see them go to heaven. Experience the joys of salvation. Because you love that person. That's true service. And anything you do for the church, is it motivated by love or by legalism? True service comes from love. A fourth point. Love can't be exercised in isolation. Again, in verse 13. But through love serve one another. Now, would you please tell me how boob-tube Christians stay home and watch television on Sunday morning can love one another? How do you love one another in your living room when there's nobody else around watching television? Love can't be exercised in isolation. It has to be exercised in community. That's why the Bible says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. In other words, don't neglect going to church. In church meeting. How can you love one another unless you're with one another? How do you know the needs of one another unless you're here when they're talked about? When people raise their hand and share a prayer request? Or when you talk to a person over a cup of coffee and they say, you know something? I'd like you to pray for my house to be sold. How do you know that if you're sitting at home? All through the scriptures. Gathering together is very important because we have to exercise love in the context of one another. You don't look in the mirror and fulfill the commandment to love. So love is exercised in community, and that means getting together, first of all. And then that means getting involved, not just sitting next to a person, but asking them, how you doing, and talking to people and getting to know them. Better than that, have them over to your home and get to know them. Go out and do something with them. But love can't be exercised in isolation. Well, that's enough points from verse 13. Let's move on to verse 14. Verse 14, we learn a very important principle. Love fulfills the law. And that's the main idea here. He says in verse 14, For the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love fulfills the law. 
Liberty that's tempered with love won't degenerate into license. Now you see how love works with liberty to keep the law? It all has to do with motivation. And someone who genuinely loves really does end up keeping the law. He really does fulfill the law. It's as if Paul is saying here, look, I know that you're eager to keep the law. Here's a good way to do it. Love one another. Wouldn't you like to just go into some cult that teaches you have to keep the Old Testament law and do this and that? Just go in there and say, hey, you want to keep the law? Love one another. And what does Paul mean? If you really want to fulfill the law, that you'll just love one another. How does that fulfill the law? Well, think about it. Think about uh, the Ten Commandments, the ones that are directed uh, towards interpersonal relationships. You shall not lie, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not covet. If I love you, would I lie to you? If I love you, would I steal? If I love you, would I commit adultery? No, because that's not right for you. It's not right for me. I'd be hurting my family, etc. If I love you, would I covet something that you have? No, I'd want what's best for you. If I loved you, I'd be glad that you got that new house, new boat, or get to go to Hawaii or won that million-dollar lottery. I'd be glad for you if I really did love you. And so when we love one another, we fulfill the law. We keep all of the law. Isn't that beautiful that it can be boiled down to one principle like that? Um, on the horizontal level, on the vertical level, love God and then love one another. And you keep the law. How simple, how beautiful, how perfect. Love fulfills the law. No wonder that love is the chief command that he's given us. You know, if, if we love one another, we could do away with probably all the laws that hold our society together as well. You know, could you imagine a, uh, you come to an intersection, you know, used to be a four-way intersection, but since they passed the law that you got to love everybody, you come to an intersection and all the cars stop because they're all saying, no, you go first. No, no, I want you to go first. Right, all day long, you know. Uh, we just have to do away with all our laws if we love one another. It'd be, it'd be a great society. And it'll be like that someday, by the way, in the kingdom. I don't know if that'll make driving easier or not. But love fulfills the law. Make it your aim to love one another, and you won't need to worry about do's and don't and uh, keeping the law. What a wonderful truth. And then another principle from verse 14. And uh, it's more of a question I want to pose and then answer. And the question is this. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. And the question is this, that who then is our neighbor? We've got to answer that question if we're going to understand what this verse means. Love your neighbor. Who then is your neighbor? Who do you think of when I say love your neighbor? You may think of someone next door. You may think of someone sitting next to you here. I don't know. We probably all get a different picture, but we're going to answer that question for you today. We're going to start back where the, the command was first given in Leviticus 19. So go way back in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Third book in the Bible. Chapter 19. This is where the command is first given. Leviticus 19, verse 18. He says there, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, 
We don't bear grudges, do we? But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Who is the neighbor in this verse? Well, it's almost defined very clearly for us. It is. It says, uh, you shall not bear a grudge against the children of your people. That's the Jewish people to whom the law was given. So the Jews. But you shall love your neighbor, your fellow Jew, as yourself. Now, you're, that's a pretty big category there. He's telling the Jews to love one another in the community of Judaism. So to Christians, we could say, well, then that seems to translate into Christianity something like we ought to love each other who belong to Christ. But is that all that he's saying? Let's turn to Luke chapter 10 now, where we'll run across this verse again. Love one another, and who's, or who your neighbor, who's your neighbor? Luke chapter 10, and it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. A familiar story to most of us. And we don't have time to read through it, but let me kind of review it verse by verse. We'll start in verse 25, Luke 10, verse 25. And a lawyer stands up in verse 25 and says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, Jesus says, well, what does the law say? How do you read it? And then he, he starts to recite all the commandments that, that you shall love the Lord your God. Well, he's, he, he's a smart lawyer. Now, what's a lawyer in the New Testament? A lawyer is somebody who, what was the law? The law was the Old Testament. So a lawyer was someone who knew the Old Testament well. It wasn't a lawyer in the way we think of it. It was a biblical lawyer. He knew the Bible. And so he answered rightly. He said to Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He was right. Jesus said, uh, what does the law say? And he says, love God and love your neighbor. And then Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, and he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Evidently, the lawyer wanted to justify himself. Uh, Evidently, he felt some guilt because he had not kept the law perfectly. Perhaps he had been very selective about who his neighbors were. And he knew that he was loving some people, but not all people. And so he said, he knew he wasn't loving like he should, and so he said, who is my neighbor? In other words, I can't keep this commandment because I really don't know who my neighbor is. The law didn't tell me who my neighbor was very clearly. And so Jesus answers this question with the parable. He's answering the question, who is my neighbor? In verse 30, he tells a story. and We'll have to kind of do it in survey fashion. There's a man who's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he falls among thieves, and they strip him, they wound him, and they leave him half dead. In verse 31, a priest, a holy man of God, a Jew, Jewish uh, priest, walks by, sees him and passes by on the other side of the road. Evidently, the priest said, this man's not my neighbor. I don't know him, never seen him before. Likewise, a Levite. Now, a Levite was somebody who ministered in the temple, not, not a priest, but somebody who helped the priest, like an assistant, like a deacon, all right? Here comes a deacon or altar boy walking down, and he sees the man, and he passes by on the other side. Okay, two religious men walk by. But verse 33, a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Now, who is this man? A Samaritan is somebody who was despised by the Jews, hated by the Jews, looked down upon as a dog. They call them dogs, half-breeds. 
They despised them, wouldn't talk to them. When they journeyed to the northern part of uh, Palestine, they would go around Samaria instead of through Samaria. Put all that trouble because they hated the Samaritans so much. But a Samaritan is walking through Judea, territory of the Jews, and he sees a Jewish man half dead, and he has compassion on him. And he went to him, and he put bandages on him, poured oil and wine on him, put him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day when he departed, he gave the innkeeper um, two denarii, uh, some money to take care of him. And Jesus asked the final question in verse 36. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the lawyer answered him, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Interesting, isn't it? But whereas the Old Testament seemed to say, love your neighbor, that is, those who are your own people. Here, somebody who was not a Jew showed mercy on a Jew, and Jesus says, those two are neighbors. But it's interesting the way he phrased it, because Jesus didn't say, so which one of them was a neighbor? Let me see if I can word this right. He didn't say, to whom was that man a neighbor? He said, who was a neighbor to him? Okay? He wasn't worried about the half-dead man and who he was a neighbor to. He was talking about us who have the responsibility, us who can meet the need, and saying the one who was a neighbor to the man is the one who showed mercy. So what's the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? In short, I would say this. Your neighbor is anyone who has a need that you can meet. Your neighbor is anyone who has a need that you can meet. You can start with your neighbors next door to your house. You can continue that to your church group here. You can take that to your workplace. Anybody that walks into your life and has a need is your neighbor, according to Jesus Christ. But the better question is, who will you be a neighbor to? Because that's what Jesus' emphasis was at the end of the story. Who was a neighbor to that man? The real emphasis is, who will you be a neighbor to? Those who have need. Who has need? Every single one of us. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love one another. You're each other's neighbors. Another principle from the end of verse 14 in Galatians is that we must discover how much we love ourselves. Now that we've found out who our neighbors are, the question is, how much do we love ourselves? Because he says, that's the standard. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now we know who our neighbor is. Now how much do we love ourselves? Well, think of some of the things that you do out of love of self. Some things that are important to you. You love yourself, but how do I know that? Because you think you're important, and I think I'm important. Self-esteem is important to us. We want to belong. We want to have people's respect. We want to get ahead in life. We want to love, uh, be loved by people. And all those things come from the fact that I love myself. Now, if I love you as myself, then that means that I'm thinking about what you want and what you need. Do you need self-esteem? Do you need respect? 
You need to be loved. You need to get ahead in the world. You need to feel important. You need to feel like you belong. If I love you as I love myself, then those are the very basic kind of needs that I want to meet in your life. If I'm going to fulfill the command, love your neighbor as yourself. So if that's important to me, and it's important to you, then if I love you, I'm going to want to help meet those needs in your life. To make you feel important, to make you feel wanted, to make you feel respected. All these things. And so that answers the question, how much do we love ourselves? And finally, in verse 15, a negative. He says, if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. It seems like he's just changing his, uh, the tone real quick here. What he's saying is love does not destroy others. Doesn't that make sense? Love does not destroy others. In fact, the words that he uses and language he uses in verse 15 is the imagery of two wild animals biting and eating one another until they eat each other up. They kill each other. Sometimes animals will do that. They'll just fight to the death and both of them die. And the words here, bite and devour and be consumed by one another, comes from the animal realm that describes animals fighting one another. And perhaps he's giving them this word because, like I said, there, there are those in the church who are arguing about this legalism that's in the Galatian church. And they're, they've got, it's reached a, 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 this kind of wild pitch and they're just going at each other, going at each other's throats. Christians can act like that. You better believe it. Christians can be some of the cruelest people in the world. I have seen it. I've experienced it. Christians aren't always kind. I hate to shock you. Christians aren't always compassionate. Christians can be some of the cruelest people in the world. James Vernon McGee says he'd like to preach a sermon on verse 15 sometime. He used to say he'd call it Christian cannibals. <laughs> what keeps us from eating one another alive? Love. Love one another. So you don't exterminate one another. There's no love in a church. That church will soon be destroyed. They'll be fighting. They'll be bickering, arguing. There'll be criticism and gossip. And that church will be destroyed. You'll, you'll end up, if you fight and devour your brother or sister, it'll all come back to you. And you'll end up exterminating your own self. So how do you not destroy another person by biting and devouring them? Just don't listen to criticism. Don't listen to gossip. Refuse to. Change the subject. Switch the subject. Say something good about the person when someone says something bad. Protect other people because you would want someone else to protect you and love them as you love yourself. Someone says something negative about somebody in the church, you stop them because that's what you'd want them to do to you. But don't allow criticism and gossip. Don't even give a, an end or a beginning to it, lest it corrupt. We've given a lot of principles this morning. We've asked the question, legalism or license? And we've said neither. Liberty. Liberty that's restricted, governed, and perfected by love for one another. Liberty with love is the answer to Christianity. Liberty with love is Christianity. It's loving one another, free from the law and condemnation, 
but free to love one another and do things for one another. Free to serve God and to love him and become his slave and therefore slaves to one another. And that, my friends, is a life of total freedom. When you learn to love one another, it frees from guilt, it frees from anxiety, it frees from self-pity and getting hung up on yourself. Love is the healthiest medicine in the world for a person and for a church. How about you? Have you become a slave to God? Have you actually given him your life and say, I'm going to become your slave? I'm going to be enslaved to love one another. I'm going to be committed to other people before I'm committed to myself. I'd like you, in closing, just to turn all the way back to Exodus chapter 21. Genesis, Exodus, second book in the Bible. Exodus chapter 21. There's a beautiful illustration there of love that has made a commitment to slavery. In Exodus chapter 21, look at verse 2. This is a law that comes right after the Ten Commandments, and it's a law for Hebrew slaves. And he says there, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. So the Hebrew law was a Hebrew slave had to be released on the seventh year. You couldn't be a Hebrew slave for more than six years. That was the law. You had to set him free after six years. But in verse 3, if he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. That's not important for our, our purposes. Um, and then in verse 4, it says, if his master has given him a wife and bears him sons, uh, they, they shall leave with him when he goes. Okay, so, you know, any, if he's had a family there, he has to take them with him when he leaves on that seventh year. But, verse 5, if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, and I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges, and he shall also bring him to the door, or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Isn't that beautiful? What a slave could do is, he, if he loved his master, if he really loved his master, and sometimes those relationships develop, then he would say, I don't want to be free. I want to serve you the rest of my life. And so they'd go before the elders in the city, and they would take his earlobe, and they'd press it up against the door, and they'd take it all, and they'd push it through the earlobe. And that slave would serve his master the rest of his life, not out of obligation now, but out of freedom and out of love. See, when I was about 16 years old, I got my ear pierced. Back then, it wasn't a cute little thing to do like so many are doing today, so many guys are doing today. It was a pretty radical and rebellious thing to do, and that's why I did it. And I proudly wore a cross in my ear. That's the sign of my rebellion for a number of years. The hole's never closed up. In fact, today, I, now and then, I'll test it with Karen's earrings. I'm always hoping it closes up, but it won't close up. It just stays open, and I've got a pierced ear the rest of my life. So I've, I've learned to turn lemons into lemonade. And sometimes some of the scars that we get before we know Christ can stay with us the rest of our lives. And I've learned to turn this scar into something positive because I tell people, 
that it just shows that I'm God's slave, that I serve a new master now for the rest of my life. It's not going to go away, and I'm going to have a pierced ear, then it's going to symbolize what Exodus chapter 21 teaches. I've made that commitment, and I try to live up to it best I can. I'm not perfect. How about you? Can we have an ear-piercing ceremony after the service? Have you made that commitment to love God and to be enslaved to him and to love one another as yourself? Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.